welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Coming up in the podcast, I'm off to the bespoke handmade bicycle show in Bristol to talk with frame builder Richard Hallett about all the new bicycle technology that's uh, hitting the market at the moment and being adopted by a lot of custom frame builders. We'll be talking disc brakes, one by chain sets, press fit bottom brackets and lots more. Also in the podcast, you'll be able to find out what happens when two cycling podcasts collide in a head-on crash. But first, I want to bring you the news about my latest book, which came out last month. And I want to do that by reading you an email. It comes from um, a reader and um, it goes as follows. Dear Jack, thanks for another great Lost Lanes book. I bought your first book because I live in the South. I bought the second book because I'm originally from Wales. And in both cases, it's nice to read about parts I already know and to do some of the new routes. And I've bought the West book because my wife and I were wondering where to do a few rides this summer. And I think you've solved the problem for us. I'm of an age, brackets 70, where a lot of people I know try to convince me to go on cruises. I tell them that happiness for us is a quiet country road on our bikes with a prospect of a good pub at the end of the day. So your books hit a sweet spot for me. My friends think I'm mad and the feeling is mutual. Great photography, great books, and I look forward to more. Best regards, Roger. I really don't want this to sound as if I'm blowing my own trumpet, but as much as I enjoy receiving the occasional royalty check from my publisher, I have to say that it's emails like that, as well as pictures and posts on social media and on the web, seeing people out there, hearing from them, hearing that they're enjoying doing the rides that I've designed is just it's just the best feeling there is. Lost Lanes West is the new one. It's the third in the series. Again, it's 36 bike rides. 30 are original rides that I've designed myself and six of the best organised events on the cycling calendar. Lost Lanes West covers the West Country. It's an area that I've defined as going from Stonehenge all the way down to Land's End, south of the M4 motorway. So in the book, there are rides in all of the um, stunning landscapes of the West Country, from the Jurassic Coast in Dorset, up to Cranbourne Chase and Salisbury Plain, and the Avon Valley, um, to the Somerset Levels and the Mendips, across to Exmoor, Dartmoor and Bodmin Moor. There's a Cornish Coast to Coast and a ride that goes around the uh, very tip of Cornwall, around uh, West Penwith. So as Roger mentioned, there's a lot of photography um, and there's my ride descriptions, which I try to weave together the threads of geography, history, geology, architecture and nature. My aim with the ride descriptions is to provide information that helps people to understand and interpret the landscape that they're cycling through to get a little bit more out of it than just pushing the pedals. And for each ride, um, there's a good list of cafes, pubs, B&Bs, bike shops and places to hire bikes. Most of the rides are accessible by train and um, quite a lot of the rides are linked to neighbouring rides so you could um, make a much longer tour than just a, a day or two. Um, and each ride has a listing of my favourite cafes and pubs and places to stay overnight. The book's accompanied by a comprehensive website which um, has information on each route, um, has the GPX files if you use GPX in a GPS device as well as turn-by-turn -turn instructions and printable maps. If you want to um, order a copy, 
I am selling them directly. I'm selling signed copies and I'll happily personally inscribe it to you or if you're giving it as a gift to um, whoever it is that's the lucky recipient. The price is $16.99 and um, that includes free UK postage. Um, and the website, well, it's the Bike Show website, and I'll put a link in the show notes um, to this episode of the podcast. Obviously, ordering from me helps me um, because I get a little bit more of the money. But you can also buy it from your local bookshop or uh, from Amazon who stock it. I've been doing some book events over the last few weeks. And the next one is Tuesday the 1st of May in the evening at Stanford's Map and Bookshop in Covent Garden in London. I think it costs £4 and you can book online. And if you buy a ticket, then the price you paid for the ticket counts against the price of buying a book on the night. I'm going to be talking about the book, but I'm also going to be talking about how to plan the perfect bike ride sharing my tips and tricks for optimal route selection and design. So that's going to be covering mapping tools, um, how to make the most out of maps, um, whether they're paper maps or online maps and all the new resources that are coming out um, on the internet. If you're looking to uh, plan your own bike rides, whether just for yourself or leading group of friends out into the countryside, or you know, if you want to start writing your own cycling guidebooks, I'll be sharing um, everything that I've learned over the, uh, the last few years that I've been doing Lost Lanes. Now, during the fallow period over the last few years, while I've been doing other things like um, researching for Lost Lanes West, you'll have noticed that there are a few more cycling podcasts out there. There's um, the cycling podcast itself um, with my old friend Lionel Burney, who uh, made his debut on the bike show and now has gone on to um, even greater things with the cycling podcast. And that is the place to go to hear about professional road racing, if that's what you're into. It seems like most of the major cycling websites and magazines have now got a podcast and Lance Armstrong is podcasting. Um, but my favourite of all the new cycling podcasts that have come along in the last couple of years is the Wheel Suckers podcast. And that is produced by Look Mum No Hands and London Bike Kitchen, which are two amazing bicycle enterprises in London. And a couple of weeks ago, while I was up in town um, doing a little mini London launch of Lost Lanes West, I uh, ran into Alex and Jenny, who present the Wheel Suckers podcast. And well, seeing as we were in the same room together with a microphone switched on, we decided to see what would happen. So for the next 10 or 15 minutes, um, you can hear the somewhat chaotic results of what happens when two podcasts collide. Bear with us um, on the audio quality front. It does sound a little as though um, I've been locked in a cupboard. I think that may just be Alex and Jenny's revenge for me gate crushing their podcast. And if you want to listen to the whole thing, which runs to about 45 minutes or so, just head over to the Wheel Suckers podcast. You'll find it on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, and it's well worth digging back into their back catalogue as well, because there have been some really great shows. Hi, friends. I'm Alex and I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mum No Hands and I'm joined by my stoker. I'm Jack Thurston and you're listening to The Bike Show. Um, no. <laughs> Sorry, it's meant to be Jenny. I'm joined by Jenny. Sorry, I'm late. Well, but, but this, is, this, is, this is The Bike Show podcast. What? Oh, I thought it, this is The Wheel Suckers podcast. Um, I don't think so. This what? is The Bike Show. Well, why don't we record together? Um... I don't know about that. What's 
What's going to happen? I don't know. We have stuff in common, don't we? What, we're both podcasts about bikes and people who ride bikes? Oh my God, we do a podcast about bikes and you do a podcast yeah, that's about true. bikes. Should we do this together? It could, it could work. Let's do this together. Let's, let's try this. Let's ride this <laughs> trandom. Trandom. No, what is a triple tandem? It's a trandom. Trandom? Yeah. This triple is a tandem. terrible triple <laughs> podcast. <laughs> We're joined by our friend. He's now our friend. We're joined by our friend Jack. Well, it's great to be here on the Wheel Suckers <laughs> podcast, and welcome to all uh, listeners to the Bike Show too. Um, the Wheel Suckers podcast is the younger, more attractive, funnier version of the Bike Show, and more female version of the Bike Show. Should add. <laughs> Which is better generally. It's fine. You well, don't need to spell on, it out. On but... <laughs> every criterion, you do um, exceed. <laughs> So, what do you do, Jack, for our listeners that maybe don't know? Well, I started presenting the bike show when it was a radio show before there were podcasts back in 2004 on an art radio station in London called Resonance FM, which is still going. And um, 200 episodes later, I am living in the Black Mountains in southeast Wales and have a sideline in cycle touring guidebooks, which is why I'm here today in London because I'm going to be at Look Mum No Hands in about an hour drinking beer and trying to flog a few copies of my book <laughs> which is about cycling in the West Country so maybe we can talk about that later but yeah the bike show is kind of like it's it's about everything to do with cycling especially not racing cycling if you delve back into the archives of you know these all these hundreds of shows you'll find done it's Dynamo in 2005 I think I listened to something about uh, Stormy Archer Hubs Stormy Archer Hubs good we had an interview with Sheldon Brown before he died oh my gosh I know I know that is so it's it's kind of like there are actually quite a number of people who have interviewed on the bike show who are now dead so it's it's (laughs) that is a statement is that a sign (laughs) if you keep going for long enough you'll find the same thing happens to your guests okay Death wow. Wild for us all friends. But, um, Jenny, <laughs> it, tell the few bike show listeners who don't know who you are, to tell them about you. Uh, yes, you? I didn't introduce myself at the beginning. I am the director of the London Bike Kitchen. We're a do-it-together bike workshop in Hackney, and we teach people how to fix their own bikes. And uh, I wrote a book last year called How to Build a Bike. I used to work around the corner from the 56A in Elfin Castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, is that kind of the same sort of idea yeah. of basically you come and fix your same own bike? Same vibe, uh, but we, we monetized it because <laughs> we need to pay for our overheads and we pay our staff a living wage. Um, even myself now, included <gasps> a living wage. This is amazing. Um, so the idea is that people can come in and learn from us how to fix all sorts of things. So we do a whole spectrum of classes from introduction to maintenance, um, stuff on, we just introduced a hydraulic disc brake class. We are also doing wheel building and build your own bike classes. So we're trying to build up people's skills around their bicycle with the idea, the main goal is getting people to ride their bike more. More but Hashtag more butts on bikes. Yeah. We just want people to ride their bikes more. And so we're taking away the fear that's kind of surrounding a bike when, when something goes wrong. There is a lot of fear. It's something that I think about a lot because if you drive a car, which I do as well as ride bikes, you're never expected to fix your car, are you? That's like, that's not part of the deal. Basically, cars never go wrong, really, almost never go wrong compared to bikes. 
And when they do, the idea is you just take them to be fixed. And get ripped off. And I guess, yeah, it costs a hell of a lot of money. No, yeah. tell me about it. You could buy a new bike every time you take your car in to be fixed. But it does worry me that I get my hands filthy, like on a bike ride, and I have to fix a puncture or do something to it. And it's like, this is, haven't they sorted this out yet? Why do, why do I have to do this? So I've got great hopes for things like, I don't know. Um, electronic well, brakes. Electronic and, shifting, electronic for shifting. sure. Um, belt drive. Last hub forever. gears. Hub gears. Because, you know, you shouldn't have to be kind of fixing your bike on, on one level. But on the other level, it's incredibly interesting and kind of rewarding thing and to do. And empowering. And empowering. Yeah. I don't want to use that word, but that's the word I'm <laughs> going to use. Yeah. I was thinking the other day, I was like, I ride a machine. You know, you're like, love machines and technology and bikes are that, really. Yeah, they're they gears are. and stuff going around. And it's kind of really cool when you start it's... to demystify what all the parts are. And that's yeah, what I think Jenny's, Jenny's workshops, Jenny's space does really well. Because it's very easy to look at a bike as I've been learning parts and you're like, it almost looks blurry because you just can't mm. even take it in. Um, actually, it's a really interesting, that link I sent you today, there's this test website where you can test products oh, out. Oh, terrible. And someone I know linked it to me because I get this all the time. I don't know if you guys do, especially like with Christmas where it's like, yeah. you like bikes, you get bike shit. So I get all the links to oh all God. the fucking cruddy bikes. All the presents. All the bike presents. I'm like, you guys, I actually love this. Oh, well, because it's got a little embossed logo. Yeah, yeah it's got it. a You're yeah, sure yeah. bike. Yeah. And I got sent this one that was test this lady's bike and keep it. And the photograph, the brake pads oh my God. weren't even like aligned on the rim. There were no brake levers. And then there were no levers and no They need cables. to be aligned on the rim, do they? <laughs> so they're like... Is that like part <laughs> yeah. of... Will I learn that by reading your book? That's in the book. Okay. Yeah. And it was this thing where I was Learning like, already. someone else had sent it to me, and obviously they couldn't see that because they just don't they even don't know. know. Yeah. It's like those, um, have you seen the drawings that people do where someone's asked them to draw a bike and then they do it and then it's like, it's totally <laughs> in like a Picasso. The, the, yeah, the cranks are in the wrong spot or it's, it doesn't have a down tube, but people don't know. It's not part of their... The best is when that's the person who's just drawn the bicycle on on the bike lane. Yeah. Oh, happens. yeah. I love those bikes. Oh, God. <laughs> so you try riding that, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the wheels are kind of completely oval yeah. and they're never going to go around. Yeah. So, so your book is about someone, basically, it's like, it looks like you've got a strong leaning towards lugged steel. It's not uh, a lot of carbon fibre in here. Or, or is, is it but the idea that if you, like, had a bike or found a bike frame in a skip yeah. and you could turn it into a bike that you could ride turn with minimal a single speed so single there's no speed. gears okay. in this boat okay. and the idea was you're taking a, a like a a racer from the 60s 70s 80s vintage steel kind of yeah. frame um, and down cycling it to a single speed yes exactly <laughs> Get rid of the gears. Yeah, get rid it of makes the it so much easier. You don't, you don't need get rid of the It's actually a book about unicycles. <laughs> yeah, ride it till the rims fall off. <laughs> the simplest form okay. of a ride. Yeah, you want to come. You guys, unicycles are the future. Oh, oh they're so hipster. That's going to be the peak. I did see one at Victoria, Victoria Park the other day and I nearly threw up. <laughs> I hate them. And then you get the giant. Have you seen the touring unicycles? What? They exist. Tour yeah. unicycles. Yes. What? There's like handlebar kind of thing on it where you can put your bags and like. Please. <laughs> There's that guy, Joff, something or other Joff, who's been recycling around the world, unicycling around the world. And yeah, he's got panniers. Oh my, oh my God. God. Yeah. Actually, I, I think 
I think I had him on the bike show. Did <gasps> I you had a unicyclist. Like with panniers. And he, but it was good. I mean, have you ever ridden a tall bike? Yes. No. I cried the entire time. <laughs> I, mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't get off. So I just had to keep riding it. it was like, <laughs> and then I went to grab onto a pole and I kind of got it wrong and then I like slipped down it. <laughs> Yeah. But once you're up, it's quite hard to get up onto it. Yep. But once you're up, it's remarkably stable mm. and you get so many smiles. Yeah. It's yeah. The only people like give way and yeah, they say it, hi. Yeah. And you're like, why can't you do this when I'm on yeah. a regular bike? Yeah. The only thing that's come close is cycling with uh, my kids on the bike, which I've done because they're sort of still small enough to be able to be, go on my bike now, two and four. And, um, and cycling around town in where I live in Abergavenny, I get so many smiles and people coming up to say, oh, that looks so nice, they look so happy, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, why can't you be like that to all people? All cyclists. Yeah. You look so get... happy and you'd be like, oh, no, no. Do you have, like, one, one kid on the front and one kid on the back? Well, I did that when I was had the elephant bike, um, which is those post office bikes that have yeah. been oh, um, nice. reconditioned and they're sending them. You buy one and then the money that you pay... Um, sends one to Malawi oh, cool. to a social enterprise oh, there where they get used by people who need transport, local transport to get around with their businesses. And um, But they're the old Pashley Pronto kind of mail bikes when the nice. Royal Mail decided they didn't want to have bikes, they just gave them to this social enterprise. Anyway, so I had one on the front on, the, on handlebars and one on the back. But then my daughter got too big and heavy for the front. So now we have got a, an amazing like electric long tail so there's extra cycle, make a make a long tail with cool. 26 inch wheel at the front, 20 inch wheel at the back. So the kids go on a big long platform at the back, and um, yeah, we get a lot of. Is it a little up. bench? There's yeah, it's like a long. Well, it's not, they don't sit side saddle; they just kind of astride it. Yeah, yeah. But it's got these little hoops that go around the side that they can hang on to, so oh, they can cool. turn around and you can fit three three on the back. That's awesome! Wow. So I want to go good. on one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I want kids just so I can stick them on a bike. <laughs> when I saw I saw that thing that that cargo bike taxi. Pedalwee! Yeah. Pedalwee rules. Just, just around the corner. Yeah, we love Pedalwee. Yeah, they didn't have a fare though, so they were just kind of cruising for trade, I suppose. Just like Uber. So. Mm, yeah. They're Uber. Yeah. They're a bike app. Uber. Yeah. yeah. They're doing it's well? Really good. I think so. They're, doing, they're, they're looking for ri- drivers, I guess. Riders. Riders. No, no, they're riders. looking for people to actually more. drive the bike. I, I can't say ride the bikes because that's a customer, but I mean the people who are. Oh. Okay. Pe- Operator. Operators. Yes, yeah. that's the word. Yes, yeah, so looking for more people. Actually, a fun story, but one of the uh, drivers, one of the people that work for them, uh, <laughs> he's a life model we used him for bicycle life drawing. <laughs> Did you have the bike in there as well? No, we should oh, do that next so time. so good. Yeah. Like sitting astride the... Just lying on the pedal knee. Yeah. Draw me like one of your pedal knees. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was really nice because I, I sort of did cold turkey when I left London in 2013 um, and haven't really come back very much. So when I do come back, there's always like a lot of change has happened. That was going to be one of my questions was, mm, what are the differences yeah. since you left? Because it hasn't been that long. Well, five years now. Yeah, five years. Um, the cycle superhighways at Blackfriars Road, because I lived in Waterloo on the, on the cut, um, well, I was living in London, and that Blackfriars Road was a complete kind of urban desert. And now it's got this cycleway in it, which is great. And I think there's, I, I rode the one on the sat on the embankment, yeah. kind of east-west yeah. superhighway. Yeah. That's nice. That is That's really good. good. It's but, so nice. Um, so there's good stuff happening, but I gather there's a bit of bike lash 
against these things that that, that seems like the current mayor is not quite so enthusiastic about about confronting the antis. I think he kind of is in, yeah. what I get that he's in, he's sort of in favour of it in theory, but doesn't want to fight the fight. Doesn't want to expend his political capital to make it happen. I don't so think he rides a bike, does he? I don't think that should matter. No, 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 you're right. But it would make him more empathetic or he would be one of us, Mm. but he's not one of us. And that's why he's kind of like straddling the fence being like, I need to make everyone happy when it's like, actually, this is one of those Jeanette City con moments where it's like, no, you have to force the people who are complaining into realizing, no, this is wrong. The only way our city is going to reduce congestion and get rid of air pollution Mm. is to introduce viable uh, cycle lanes for people to use. But don't you think it's more powerful when that argument comes from someone who isn't a habitual cyclist, that they've basically got it, they understand it. Yeah. But that, yeah, that for seems sure. to rarely happen. It, Peter Walker, yeah. one of the things in his, the guy who wrote that book called Bike Nation, have you had him on the We, on the, ha- on we the, haven't on the cast? yet. Peter, no. Peter Walker. Peter Walker. Listening. I don't know <laughs> We can tweet him. He's been on the bike show. You can check it out. <laughs> Last April, I think. He said that it's still too um, much reliant on having a mayor or a, some city leader who is enthusiastic about cycling. It's not something that just makes sense mm-hmm. to the people running the city in the way Transport that we think planners. it should. Mm. And that's and as long as you're dependent on individuals and their own passion and commitment, then I think it's on shaky ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's my fear, but it's definitely. I mean, so much more. So I, can, I mean, I'm I'm kind of smiling at everyone who's on a bike. Like, so people think there's this mad guy walking around London, kind of. Hi, oh, hi. Because in Abu many, you smile. Well, at yeah, you're on like, a bike. oh, there you are. Yeah. Oh, didn't think you'd be doing this. Well done. <laughs> it reminds me of how it used to be in the late '80s and '90s when I sort of started cycling all around London because I grew up in London. And that's sort of when I started cycling around it. And you would greet each other um, or, or a wave or something like that. Or just an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement, yeah. kind of nod. But now, you know, you'd be crazy to do that in London. I get it, I do it a bit. Yeah, I get it in Leightonstone, where I live, which is very east-east. And I don't see many cyclists around there. So when I do, we would like give each other a really odd look where it's like, uh, oh, uh. But we want to maybe say hi, but then we're too embarrassed or it's a bit weird. So now we're in that weird zone. I think that's a very London thing. It's like, Just on the outskirts. You want to well, you want to engage, but also you're too... Not scared, but it's like that's not what you do in London. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of... People have just got to cross that threshold. Um, there's lots of ways. I mean, the Boris bike's quite good for doing that, weren't they? That, that anyone could just hop on and have, give it a go. You didn't have to have a bike. And I think a lot of people don't realise that having a bike in a city is actually quite a hassle you've got to store it somewhere, you're going to take up space. And every, stolen all everybody's time. living in such small flats upstairs and all this kind of stuff. They don't want this oily monster in their hallway, do they? I mean, unless you really take the plunge and then you just live in a house full of a billion bikes, which is so probably what, what your, we all did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on the dockless schemes? Yeah, well, I saw those around and I thought, what is that crap bike? <laughs> <laughs> like, who's driving that crap bike? Well, that was me with Alex and Jenny from the Wheel Suckers podcast, and you can hear the rest of our um, slightly chaotic chat on um, on their podcast feed. Um, so look for the Wheel Suckers podcast. So I've made it to um, the great 
engine hall or whatever it is in uh, Bristol for the Bespoked Handmade Bicycle Festival. And it's always a real pleasure to, to come here to look around at all the work that people have been doing and um, building the most beautiful bicycles that, that, that there are really. And it's also interesting to kind of see how new technologies are creeping into handmade frame building because there's a sort of idea that handmade frame building is something that's a little bit retro, a little bit harking back to the past, to, a, to another time in cycling. But we've had this onslaught of new technologies in cycling and they do seem to be being adopted by quite a lot of the frame builders here at Bespoked. Someone who um, is going to cast his expert eye over handful of these new technologies is Richard Hallett. I've been parked on his stall for the last couple of hours hawking my Lost Lanes wares but Richard is a frame builder uh, based out in West Wales. He is a former bike racer, cycle tourist as well and he is the technical editor for Cycling UK. So he is someone who is eminently well qualified to assess whether these new technologies are good, bad or ugly. We're going to go through them quite quickly, quite briskly, just to give people an overview of why these things have been introduced, why they're gaining popularity, whether the popularity is misplaced, whether people ought to be thinking twice before adopting these technologies, and also whether the technology is something that is in principle a good idea but actually needs a little bit more evolution and refinement and before we wise shoppers spend our money on it. You're someone who, who thinks carefully before you um, adopt a new technology. Is, is, that, is that a sort of a philosophy? Or, or Yes, I'm not, I think you should draw a distinction between the bikes I ride myself and the bicycles I build for customers. And of course, if someone wants a bicycle with a specific technology, for example, one by... I'll happily build it for them. But when you are building custom bicycles for people, the, the first thing to do is to find out exactly what it, they want the bicycle to do and go from that to a specification which gives them the best performance given what they're going to use the bicycle for. So I've got two bicycles on the stand. They're both touring bicycles in a sense, but they're very different. So one of them is a retro-styled randonneur bike along the lines of a 1960s French uh, Audax bike, that kind of thing. The other is actually a very, very contemporary heavy-duty touring bike built for a guy who weighs nearly 20 stone. And it too has rim brakes, but it's actually very, it's a very modern specification. The specification is chosen specifically to suit the guy who's, who's riding it. So he's got two-inch wide tyres on mountain bike, 26-inch mountain bike wheels. The wheels are chosen for their strength. You know, he's a big, heavy guy. The two-inch tyres are chosen for a good combination of rolling resistance, wear and so on. And the rim brakes, which are Magura hydraulic rim brakes, are chosen for their immense power, reliability and lack of maintenance when out on the road. So it's a very modern bike. It's obviously, it's steel, but in other, in other senses, it's, it's really specifically dialed into the, to the, the requirements the guy's going to have. And if there were a better component available than the ones I've chosen, given the budget and uh, any other requirements then that would be on the bike. OK, well, let's turn to our list. Um, at the top of my list is disc brakes. Right. Um, there weren't any disc brakes at the first bespokes I came to, I don't think, um, maybe on a couple of mountain bikes. But now you see disc brakes everywhere. Good, bad or ugly? Good in the sense that it shows that it is possible to incorporate that kind of technology into custom frame building. Good in that there are advantages to disc brakes. I think there is always the element of people wanting 
not to be seen to be missing out on some new, new technology. In other words, if the, the feeling that if you do not have a disc brake bike, then you are not keeping up with current, current trends. So whether people need to have disc brakes on their bikes is a, is a different question. I haven't built any yet because I have reservations about some aspects of their application to lightweight steel frames, for starters, and their suitability in all circumstances for road bikes. The advantage is supposedly better braking in a wider range of conditions and you don't have to replace the whole wheel when things wear out. Is that a fair summary of what the advantages are? There's absolutely no question that, that disc brakes are the go-to thing for mountain biking and for many off-roading applications. In terms of better braking, I think it would probably be more accurate to say more consistent braking across a range of conditions. So you can expect to get good braking in poor weather conditions when you might worry about the performance of rim brakes. And, of course, the, there is the self-evident fact that if you have a disc brake, you won't be wearing out wheel rims, which a lot of people perceive as being a problem when it probably isn't. In 40 years of riding, I don't think I've ever needed to replace more than three rims because they've worn out. You know, I get replaced for other reasons, like new, just new, new stuff comes along. But, you know, it, it, is a, it is a factor. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that disc brakes themselves can be quite expensive to run because pads are expensive and they don't last very long. Discs can be very vulnerable to being knocked and bent. And once bent, they tend to pulse once got back into shape, even if they look straight. So it's not entirely clear that they have a massive advantage in, in that respect. Do you think they're a fully evolved technology or do you think we're going to see improvements to disc brakes? Well, they are far more evolved now than they were two or three years ago. So there's been a widespread adaptation of through axles, which are, have been developed in response to the requirements of disc brake technology. The new fitting standards, flat mount standards and so on, have improved the performance of disc brakes. Um, the sizes of discs are you know, getting more suitable to the demands of road bike riding and the disc calipers themselves. So the technology is way in advance of what you'd have seen three or four years ago anyway. I think you just need to, need to actually look very carefully at what you want the bicycle to do. If consistent all-weather braking is your absolute priority, then they are a good choice. And when would they be a very bad choice? I think if you're, if you're going touring with them, then they are vulnerable. If you're going touring in a remote area with partly off-roading, where you might be encountering gravel, grit, that kind of thing, you might need to, to carry several sets of pads because they can wear out so quickly. And if you want the lightest, most high-performance road bike available, again, I don't think they're the right choice. And if you look at the result of, say, the Strada Bianchi professional road race, which is, of all the races on the professional calendar, the one where discs ought to offer an advantage because a lot of it's off-road and there are some very steep descents. Um, I think the, the best-placed disc brake rider was in about eighth place that year, this year, so... One by. So this is um, this is where you only have one chainring um, on your cranks. There's a lot of that around here. A lot of that around. It's, it's quite amusing to someone as old as me who remembers when, you know, as a as a kid riding around with a single chainring on the front. The, I dreamt of a double chainring and, and a front clang. You know, so there's always been a problem, particularly in mountain biking, with uh, chain suck on in small chainrings. In one sense, one by is a response for that. And if you have a large single chainring you are less prone to chain suck, which can be a big problem. The manufacturers have gone to great lengths then to produce 
chain rings with uh, tooth profiles that do not allow the chain to jump off. The next thing you have to do if you only have a single chain ring is have a very wide range cassette on the back to give you the range of gears you need, which in turn means there are bigger gaps between the gears. So one by is really a trade-off. You're trading the complexity and small gear jumps of a double or triple chain set for the simplicity of a one by. It's a, there is a small weight saving, but um, I think you know really you have to make that decision. Are big gaps in gears a problem for you? And if so, then you might want to have a double chain ring. And how many sprockets on the uh, rear cassette because we've got 9 speed 10 speed 11 speed Campanello have just announced that they're doing 12 speed should we all be going back to 8 speed or 7 speed what's the things to weigh up and what are the optimal decisions to come to it'd probably be fair to say you can never have too many closely spaced gears if you're a cyclist because they allow you to keep your cadence as close to optimal at all times so in, in principle the more gears you've got over a wider range the better but of course if you don't end up using all of them they may be, may be redundant and if the number of gears you've got means that the chain or the sprockets aren't as long lived then you're again you're coming going back to trade-off it's so, going to cost you more because you're going to have yeah. to keep replacing everything all the time there's no question that 10-speed chains last a long time improvements in material technology have meant that 10-speed stuff tends to last as long as eight or nine speed stuff used to but of course what you what actually happens is you end up with a lot of a lot of uh, obsolescence in cycle components if you're not careful so i mean i, I still happily ride around on 10 speed cassettes because i've got a load of them and i don't plan on throwing the whole lot into the bin but certainly the 12 speed cassettes that campagnolo have introduced will get a lot of take up amongst performance road riders would i fit one to a, an adventure touring bike possibly not just yet okay um carbon forks now we're in the land of steel here at bespoke but there's a lot of carbon fork action basically a a good carbon fork is about half the weight of a good steel fork so if you're making a lightweight road bike even with a steel frame you will save a a, a substantial chunk of weight by fitting a carbon fork in a steel frame now you then have to say are there circumstances when you're better off with a steel fork possibly if you want a traditional look you know a, a steel frame and fork is a, is a more old school arrangement that um, you've got a question of, de- of being able to produce your own steering geometry if you break your own fork blades so for the custom builder steel forks offer more opportunities you know most carbon fork manufacturers have a, a, a narrow range of offsets that you can ride and I think you know it is one of those uh, perhaps subjective assertions but a, a, a really nice lightweight steel fork has a, a different ride quality to a even a suitably designed carbon fork and steel forks are very nice to ride so if you're prepared for the weight penalty then you you might be better off with one and is there any difference in durability reliability between carbon and steel forks Mm, too perhaps too early to say with carbon forks i mean they're they're certainly capable of withstanding greater impacts without without braking but of course there are plenty of bicycles at 60 70 years old or older with uh, steel forks that are going strong but we don't know whether that will be the case with carbon forks of that age just yet Okay, next up is fat tyres. The tyres are getting fatter. No one's riding 23mm anymore. People are starting to think again about riding 25mm. I know I am. Uh, Well, I first started writing about the theoretical advantages of fatter tyres about 20 years ago in Cycling Weekly. And um, the problem was at the time, suitably lightweight fat tyres weren't available. 
the only you, know, you could get mountain, slick mountain bike wheel, uh, tires, but they were generally five or six hundred grams. So you couldn't realise the theoretical advantages. But now, with the sort of 650B revolution in randonneur bikes and so on, manufacturers are making very, very lightweight fat tyres, and, and when you ride them, you realise just how fast they are. The reason they're not used for racing is, of course, because they're heavy, and racing cyclists prioritise lightweight and acceleration and at the end, when sprinting at the end of, a, of a, um, a race over everything else. They will always have the lightest equipment, and, and certainly when it comes to tyres. Even so, the pros are, riding, are racing on 25mm tyres now instead of narrower ones because they, even they will appreciate the benefits of lower rolls and resistance. So for non-competitive riders, I would say the benefits of wider, faster rolling, grippier tyres far outweigh the disadvantage of a bit of extra weight. So the tyres that are fatter roll faster and they're more comfortable at the same time? They roll faster, they're more comfortable, they last a hell of a lot longer. I think I've managed about 5,000 miles so far on a 32 mil back tyre when you'd be lucky to get 1,500 miles out of a 25C. And how fat people go? I'd say very much um, application dependent. So one of the bikes I built is on, is on two inch, 50 mil 2 inch wide tyres. This is going to be a bike that's going to be probably weigh approaching 200 kilograms once it's fully laden. And uh, you really need to absolutely prioritise rolling resistance and get the fattest possible tyre. If you are after a sporty, lightweight but comfortable bike, then 32 mil or even 28 will do the job. What about the magic of 42 mil, which was the, the randonneur favourite on the 650B wheels? Well, let's come to the next one because that next item on my list is 650B wheels. What is a 650B wheel? Okay, well, 650B is um, a wheel size that's been around for 80 or 90 years. There's nothing new about it. These, it, um, it was effectively the, the classic French randonneur wheel size developed in the 1930s as being a tyre size suitable for the bikes they're using in the technical trials um, where they rode mountain passes on unmade roads. And they just empirically found that this was a great wheel size for riding bikes which were carrying luggage that needed to be used on all road surfaces and so on. It never went away in France, although the, the 50 or 60 millimetre wide tyres of the 30s disappeared. But in terms of why would you ride 650B, the, 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 the simple answer is there's, there's nothing magic about 650B per se. It's just that if you want to fit a fatter tyre, particularly for road riding as opposed to uh, 29ers and mountain bikes, but as long as we're talking about tarmac and possibly unmade roads, you can have a fat tyre, but if you, keep, if you reduce the wheel size, you keep the weight of the tyre and rim down. So 650B or 26 inch whatever are good ways to access the benefits of having fat tyres but without ending up with a, with a very large wheel and a corresponding weight increase tubeless tyres this is um, a kind of tyre where you don't need an inner tube because you've got a, some squidgy liquid in there that is going to make the seal between the tyre and the rim and will plug any holes caused by thorns and flints and other bits of glass and other things that give you punctures, that's the theory how does it work in practice? Obviously, tubeless tyres are almost universally used in automotive applications now because the advantages are almost uh, beyond listing. Most mountain bikers, I'd say, almost all mountain bikers use them because mountain biking tyre pressures are quite low. The, the challenge has been to make tubeless tyre technology work at the pressures that people ride tyres on the road. And this has been going on for about 10 years. 
the current sort of wave of what they, I think they call tubeless ready or tubeless easy tyres actually start, is starting to make the whole thing accessible to almost anyone. And these are tyres which will work quite happily on a standard rim or better still on a rim designed to take tubeless tyres but they're not dependent on one or the other but they have much tighter beads so they're you know they're, they're a tighter fit on the rim they'll hold higher pressures than uh, non-tubeless ready tyres uh, and I think that's the key for their use on on higher pressure wheels and what are the advantages one theoretical advantage is you don't have an inner tube so the it, it, as long as the tyre itself doesn't end up as heavy as the tyre within a tube that it replaces then you've saved some of the weight and the material to flex that you would have had in the inner tube. So there is a potential weight saving, a potential improvement in tyre flexibility and therefore rolling resistance. Um, and the other advantage, as you have already said, is that if the sealing fluid inside works as intended, you can almost ignore punctures from smaller objects like thorns, glass and so on, where the sealant will prevent tyre deflation um, and you, you might well get back from ride and discover that you've, ridden a, you've, you've had several punctures, none of which has actually let the tyre down. So it's a fantastic benefit as long as it works properly. I think we, you know, they're getting to the point where they're well worth a try. Electronic shifting. So this is instead of having gear cables, you've got um, wires and little motors that shift your chain around. They are a boon for people who find it hard to use, um, for, for whatever reason, find it hard to use cable-operated shifting systems. So I've built a, a couple of bikes for a guy with arthritis who finds mechanical STI shifting quite difficult and uh, electronic push button shifting is, is exactly right for him. For the general population they are you know, potentially beneficial if you, if you struggle with shifting. There are disadvantages obviously if your battery runs down and leaves you stuck in one gear you might wish you had a cable operator system but you know, I, think, I think in terms of the benefits to the user the main one is that they, they are, there is less, less effort in using them and they do save on fatigue particularly if you're either disabled for some reason or you're at the end of a very very long hard ride how about the argument that the indexing is always spot on because i find when i ride with index gears the things go out a little bit and i'm never quite sure how to get them back again uh buy a manual and then <laughs> uh, in, well um you know i've got shimano indexed gear systems that i haven't that i've used for you know a whole year without ever touching them um, if they're assembled correctly, you know, they, they don't really give any trouble. So they will ultimately need more maintenance than an electronic system. And uh, electronic... you get compression in the housings. Yes, and, and, and water gets in, grit gets in, um, and, and amazingly, well, perhaps not amazingly, electronic shifting systems, mainly by Shimano, have proven very popular with cyclocross racers who know that no matter how dire the conditions get, their gears will continue work functioning perfectly as long as they've got a battery. And there's another application which I think is particularly interesting but often overlooked, which is hub gears that have quite a lot of gears, and so like Alfine 8 or 11, where the cable tension is absolutely critical to the safe and correct operation of the, of the hub. But if you've got an electronic transmission, that's always going to be spot on and you're never going to have a problem of your hub gear getting mangled by having uh, a problem with the cable. Well, the uh, yeah, electronic shifting Alphine is a, is, is, a, is a thing of beauty. You know, it, the, the slickness of the gear shift has to be experienced. You know, I mean, the only sort of um, black mark against Shimano for Al, uh, D, Alphine Di2 is that it costs an absolute fortune. 
But other than that, they are great, yeah. And presumably, if you've got an electric bike, you've got a yes. permanent battery supply that can keep your electric shifting up. You may as well make the whole thing electric. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've tested a bike with an integrated um, Alphine DI2 and Shimano Steps electronic motor, and, uh, you know, it, it, it would literally just charge and ride. It's, uh, you know, and, and flawless shifting, no question. Where are we now? Press fit bottom brackets. So this is, um, well, what is a press fit bottom bracket and why does it differ from a, another a kind of bottom, bottom bracket? bracket? Yeah. Okay, well, a press fit bottom bracket is one in which the, as you like, sort of cartridge bearings are pushed into, uh, into a suitably dimensioned bottom bracket shell in which, which they, they remain stuck by the force of the fit, whereas a conventional threaded bottom bracket shell, you screw the bearings or the cups or whatever into the shell and... You know, you've, you've, you've nipped the, bear, the, the thread up tight and then the, the, the bottom bracket should stay there. But a lot of people can't stand press fit bottom brackets because they, they do cause a lot of problems. They can creak after a while. You've got some systems rely on plastic sleeves to take up any machining imperfections. But getting them to work properly is a technical challenge. Um, but at the same time, as with a lot of things, theoretically it's the best way to go. You know, it's almost all you know, engines, that kind of thing, their bearings aren't sort of screwed into place, they just sit in precision machine housings. But getting it to work in the uh, world of bicycle manufacturing is um, not quite that easy. And the fact is that threaded bottom brackets actually work very well. They're, they're, they're convenient, easily worked on, um, and if archaic, certainly you know, work well enough for many frame builders to be happy to continue working with them. Well, you did really well, Richard. That was an amazing tour d'horizon of all the new technologies that are flooding bespoke. Watch this space. And if you want to read more of Richard's analysis of, of this kind of thing, um, you're writing regular columns in Cycle, Cycle, magazine. Cycle, Cycle magazine. So uh, that's a good reason to join Cycling UK, the Cyclist Touring Club, as it once was, because you can um, read what Richard has to say about what the industry is trying to sell us. Yep. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jack. Thanks. I was in conversation with Richard Hallett of Hallett Handmade Bicycles and we were at the Bespoke Handmade Bicycle Show. Um, Check out Richard's website, hallethandbuiltbicycles.com if you want to uh, find out more about the kind of bikes he makes and his philosophy of frame building. If there are any other new bicycle technologies that you'd like to um, hear a little bit more about, uh, the pros and cons, we didn't manage to cover belt drives we didn't cover bottom bracket gearboxes. We didn't cover soft touring luggage. But if there's anything that you're particularly interested in or confused about, drop us a line. The email address is bikeshow at resonancefm.com or you can just post a message or you can just post a comment on the website, thebikeshow.net. That's it for The Bike Show this time. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll be taking a ride around the mean streets of Preston and heading out into the Lancashire countryside. Until then, goodbye.